Alright, you miscreants. Who brought these damned aphids into class? I can feel them all over my skin and invading my brain. Just like the topic of this chapter of the book report with Noah Linsk on A Scanner Darkly by legendary sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. Oh, why, hello there. This is Reese Hendrick, host of Science Factual, and for this episode of the book report, Noah and I are taking a trip into the mind of Philip K. Dick with this mindfuck of a story. Now, along with the dive into the novel, we'll be looking further into PKD's background, plus we'll hear a clip of PKD describing his experiences and perspective on reality from his famous speech in Metz, France from the 70s. By the way, for brevity's sake, I will be abbreviating down to PKD from Philip K. Dick for most of the episode. For this chapter, Noah's going to be starting things off with a synopsis and overview of the novel, so I'll preface that with a spoiler alert. If you haven't read the novel or seen the film adaptation from 2006, then get out from underneath that rock you've made a home and go to your local bookstore to pick up a copy of this intense story. Then go watch the movie, because it is one of the best adaptations of a PKD novel out there, perhaps one of the best screen adaptations of all time of a sci-fi property, and definitely the best use of rotoscoping. Plus, RDJ is on point for that role. At any rate, here's Noah with a synopsis of the novel, A Scanner Darkly. morning class or is it good evening uh what time is it well now that we're all confused and disoriented it must be time to discuss a scanner darkly by philip k dick along the way we'll try at long last to answer the question what if rene descartes had gone on more week-long benzedrine benders bob arctor is an undercover police officer his mission consists of living in a house which he owns with several heavy drug users in order to curb the spread of the mysterious new drug substance d as part of his mission bob buys sells and takes drugs with his roommates and over the course of the story his mind deteriorates significantly because the police organization is believed to be heavily infiltrated by the cartel which distributes Substance D, Bob has to wear a scramble suit and uses the alias Fred when in police facilities in order to protect his undercover identity, even from his handler. The scramble suit randomizes Arctor's appearance and makes him unidentifiable. While the gang is out of the house, the police install covert surveillance devices called scanners in the house. Based on scanner footage, his superiors determine that Bob is their primary person of interest, apparently not knowing that he is their own agent, and assign Fred to surveil him. Gradually, Fred comes to disassociate from the object of his surveillance, Bob. This dissociation is accelerated by an escalating substance D habit. Much of the read time of the first three quarters of the book is consumed with the drug-using characters sitting around the house talking about stoner bullshit. In the spirit of stoner bullshit, this seems as good a time as any to discuss Dick's recurring themes. Perhaps the theme for which Dick is best known is ambiguous in alternate realities. A Scanner Darkly is actually pretty straightforward for a PKD book, and most of the ambiguity is in the character's head. At the end of the book, a reader who does not have a mind-shattering drug addiction will more or less understand most of what has occurred. Arctor is almost certainly not a replicant. He has not been contacted by a vast active living intelligence system. The Allies won World War II, and Arctor has not abruptly found himself in a reality where he was never born. Philip K. Dick loves to investigate questions of what is real and what is not. This appears throughout his works, but in the context of A Scanner Darkly is most present in the mind of the main character, who is much less aware of his own reality than is the reader. 17th century French philosopher René Descartes, stay with me, I know, but 17th century French philosopher René Descartes famously said, cogito ergo sum, or I think therefore I am. Arctor is significantly impaired in his thinking, and in fact is a fictional character who does not exist. Uh, he and his story are, however, semi-autobiographically based on Dick's own experiences with heavy drug use. Arctor is a classic Philip K. Dick mediocre protagonist. Arctor spends most of the book spying on himself as he somewhat passively listens to the insane dialogue of his roommates. He is described by other characters, Fred especially, as being docile and dull-minded. At the same time, he is arrogant in his perception of his own abilities. 
mediocre protagonists abound throughout Dick's work. The Rick Deckard of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is vain, status-obsessed, and day-moral. Jason Taverner of Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said is a rampaging narcissist. Clans of the Alphane Moon is a lesser work of Dick's, but it happens to be the first one I read, and that one's protagonist, Chuck Rittersdorf, is determined to murder his wife. The supporting characters are not much better. The novel has many villainous entities, Substance D, and the part of the human spirit which is so vulnerable to the effects of addictive psychoactive substances, the vast and unaccountable bureaucracy of a seemingly flailing and incompetent police state, and the mysterious cartel which that police organization opposes are all malign and alienated forces which drive the non-story of the book. There is, however, only one personal and human antagonist, James Barris. Barris is a fast-talking, narcissistic sociopath of bizarre and malevolent intelligence who would never speak five words when twenty are sufficient. Barris is one of Bob Arctor's roommates and mostly drives the non-plot of the first three-quarters of the story. When another roommate, Ernie Luckman, chokes on a TV dinner and gestures to Barris to perform the Heimlich maneuver on him, Barris calmly watches Luckman asphyxiate and lose consciousness. Barris then pauses to jump up and down to simulate an emotional response before calling an ambulance to report Luckman is dead. In another scene, Barris confidently tells another friend of the group about how Bob has been unable to have sex with his girlfriend Donna because Arctor doesn't give her cocaine. Donna is a drug dealer with whom Bob has a somewhat ambiguous relationship. She gets him drugs and goes out of her way to take care of him, and Bob longs to take the relationship in a more romantic direction, but she rebuffs him whenever he tries. As Bob's mental state deteriorates and Fred is ultimately removed from the case, investigating himself, he thinks, they don't know shit about Arctor. I know Arctor. Fred's police superiors hand Bob over to Donna, who transports him to New Path, an inpatient substance abuse detox facility. At this point, Bob's mental state has deteriorated to a point of near total burnout. At New Path, he is renamed Bruce. Leaving New Path, Donna returns to her own police superiors, revealing herself to the reader as a police agent. Her supplying of Bob with drugs and enablement throughout the book was a deliberate deception from the beginning in order to damage his brain enough to be deployed undercover in the New Path program, which the police have long suspected as being the heart of the Substance D cartel. Donna laments that the farm they want to investigate only takes workers with very advanced brain damage from Substance D, and so Bob is sacrificed without even knowing it. She voices regrets, but she did, you know, do it, so... At New Path, Bruce detoxes, but never recovers beyond extremely limited mental function. After a time, he is transferred to an out-of-town farm run by New Path, where they grow the blue flowers which are manufactured into Substance D. While working in the fields at this farm, Bob notices the blue flowers which Donna had previously hinted into his awareness and examines them. A member of the New Path organization makes fun of a disoriented Bruce, telling him, that's not your god anymore, though it used to be, before leaving Bruce to work. Acting on a suggested impulse from Donna, Bob hides one of the flowers in his sock to bring to a police agent in town when he returns for a New Path Thanksgiving celebration. Like I said, it's all pretty straightforward for a Philip K. Dick book. Alrighty, folks, here at the Book Report, we like to do hands-on research when getting into the nooks and crannies of the topics we cover. So, without further delay, I humbly present you with an interesting conversation Noah and I had about A Scanner Darkly. What I do love about A Scanner Darkly, the film adaptation, is the, is the rotoscoping. Uh, because similar to hallucinogens, of which we are both on right now, let's just be honest with ourselves and law enforcement in, I in this podcast. I neither confirm nor deny allegations that I'm on psychedelics. I, I see. Okay. Well, I'll confirm for the both of us. You're going to have to fucking, from my cold, dead hands. Oh, God. Okay. Well, uh, for this experiment, I, I chose to take acid, because I think it's the closest to what substance D is described as. Well, they say tabs in the book. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, okay, so, because there's also the level at which they, in the book, they describe it as it separates the two halves of the brain. Right, yeah. The left and the right, and so he's able to run 
two basically computing humans running complete, right? Is what they call it, or is it, uh, isn't that what he calls it? You know, some of the boy howdy. Well, that's why we have the internet here. That's why we, we, have... we have the internet as a guide for us, uh, folks. Even though Noah would never admit it, he's on mushrooms right now. That's absurd. I'll for the purposes of fine. <laughs> <laughs> for the purposes of this podcast listen you know we do the research for you folks we do the research because there is no substance d there is no substance d reese has taken like four tabs of substance d 30 seconds before we started recording mm, yeah, yeah so it's all it's i'm peaking He's like currently <laughs> I'm, I'm peaking 40 minutes ago uh, <laughs> I thought that they had like a more specific term about it, but it's it's basically making the two halves of the brain compete against each other, and, and that's why the duality of like Arctur's character development comes from is like he ends up spying on himself and like right. setting himself up. Yeah. <laughs> so like he's literally, I mean, substance D, which you know again doesn't exist, but if you want a pretty close approximation. Uh, you're you're run of the mill hallucinogens, I, I think, because this is what Philip yeah. K. Dick was on. I mean, like he was on the well, government acid of the time, and I don't okay, know. is that what he was on? He was wait, so he so he like owned, so he had a and house. Well, a lot of amphetamines too. He had a house, and he had a bunch of people who were like, so this is, he had just gone through a messy divorce, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. he had a bunch of like drug addicts living in his house with him. Yeah, he was no, already an was, author at this point. Yes, mostly yeah. speedheads. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So the 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 very fine. Uh, a Scanner Darkly by Philip K. Dick, which we're currently using as a microphone stand earlier, a mm-hmm. minute ago, I was going back to it because um, I was trying to find a point that I wanted to make about the scene where Barris lets Luckman asphyxiate. Okay. But when I went to grab the book, uh, the thing that became so clearly like imperative that I needed to say was because I, I opened to like a random chapter in the middle and I was looking for it. And it's right when they get back from, they go on a road trip and the police come in and bug their place yeah. uh, before they get back or whatever. The, the main setup, yeah. The main setup. So, but like, as they get back, they're like, there's a hot cigarette in the ashtray. And then it turns out Donna is there and it's like, oh, that's why that was. But also she was fucking setting him up the whole time. The whole time. And so it's like, and, and like, and honestly, the amount of like, the, the, that character in particular is just there. Throughout the whole time, like, when she's like, oh, yeah, I'll, like, get you some drugs on credit, like, no problem, you know? And even, like, she tells another, um, she tells another drug uh, addict who, uh, in the very first chapter, the very first thing that happens after the guy with the aphids, there's a guy mm. who's walking out of there from the aphids thing, and oh, he God, sees Donna. I, he I sees Donna. That's, that's the speed thing, by the way. That's, yeah. that's PKB, like, directly yeah. relating his experience with speed, because it does feel like bugs are crawling all over your fucking skin especially after not sleeping for three days and also i think that probably because it is like the beginning of the book i think that it's probably like when he first probably decided like i'm gonna do a semi-autobiographical book or whatever and probably that was the first thing he sat down and wrote he's like there was a guy who like was covered in bugs well you and, go you go yeah. with what you know i guess absolutely um. <laughs> yeah although i don't know on the other hand because the other thing i'm about to say um is that uh immediately after the scene with the bugs uh Donna is there, like, behaving in ways that are such a giveaway for, like, the big plot twist of the book. Um, because right when she first meets that guy, she's like, I can't get you the drugs on credit. Uh, and then later we see her getting Arctur the drugs on credit. Right. Her behavior is so weird throughout the book, and so much else is weird about the book that you don't really think about it. But then, like, once the reveal happens, yeah. that she's the undercover cop or whatever... It's like everything just makes so much sense. Yeah. And you're like, what? And like, and like, literally, I opened to a random page of the book and it was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> well, it's, it is, it's a, first off, it's a great reveal. Yeah. You, you do notice it, like the duality of her behavior, you know, it, because of how she interacts with not only, as you mentioned, the other addicts, but with Arthur directly. Yeah. We've done spoiler alerts, but I guess we'll, we'll toss yeah. another spoiler alert right up in here at the top because we're going to get into. Yeah. Kind of the the meat and potatoes of a Skinner Darkly now, I guess. But is it Donna that set Arthur up, or is it the drugs, or is it his own mind? Because he is the. I think it's Donna that set him up from the beginning. I think that I think that uh, she's getting him drugs. Uh, yeah. She's his. She is his supplier. He. Uh, she is his source. He's getting money from the government for being a spy. Right. But he's spending it all on drugs, and she's the one selling them to him. 
and at the same time... But, but he's an experiment for her, so, like, I, I, it's less of a drug sting as it is, like, a fucking MK Ultra style ex, like, social experiment? No, it is a drug sting, like, because yeah, well, she's trying to get right. him to go undercover. Well, yes, the, of course, yeah. and, and he's trying to unveil who the... Who, that, that is. Well, he doesn't even know what his mission is. He's, like... Well, one half of him doesn't. Well, no, but, like, when he ultimately... So he gets all burnt out at the end of the book. He's all burnt out. Oh, yes, yeah, he's, yeah, he's completely burnt And that's when out, they yeah. send him in to the... Uh, the farm. The farm. Yeah. Yeah. Evil genius mode. Like, no. Like, uh, fucking uh, Donna was planning it the entire time. Yeah. Donna was planning it the entire time, and it's... and Oh, sorry. Well, conspiracy he, he, corner. Yeah. But also, like, it's 100% true, is the thing that's fun about conspiracy corner here. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, for, well, first off, conspiracy doesn't always mean, like, that it is a weird, kooky thing that can only exist within coincidence. Like, conspiracy is an actual thing that, that happens in, like, history. Like, people have conspired together on a, on a large scale to make, like, nefarious or otherwise things happen. But that's that's the, the weird kind of backdrop of having a story that involves hallucinogens. Because you're like, what is real? Yeah. Because with other PKD properties, like Man in the High Castle, there's one instance of the time slip or, like, non-reality. And, and this is a common theme with Philip K. Dick, like, the non-reality versus reality, and how do we even, like, perceive what reality is? And are we in a persistent reality? Because we have a shared experience, but what does that mean for us, like, as a collective consciousness, and then back down to an individual level? So... What is common reality? My brain is currently malfunctioning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, no, a, good a good reset is in order. No, it's, yeah. no I, I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, what PKD is writing about are is his experiences with how he perceives reality, whether it's been manipulated by or influenced by his uh, drug use or abuse, I would say more rather... <laughs> Because he's not a rec- he wasn't a recreational user. He was a speedhead and well, probably... so I don't know the particulars. I don't. I didn't look that deeply into his his life story, but it sounded like there was some period of time, some period of his life where he was a recreational user, where he was taking a whole awful lot. And after all, he did end up dying of a stroke so at like fifty. So probably yeah. probably doing speed for a number of years contributed to that. I would say so. <laughs> like, that yeah. Seems, yeah, that's. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And you know, it's like yeah, there there are long reaching ramifications for your issues. Or, yeah. for, or for your vices. Well, I don't and, remember if it was yeah. a forward or an afterward, but it was like, yeah, like kids playing in traffic. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> kids yeah. playing in traffic? Philip K. Dick wrote either a forward or an afterward in this book. I don't remember which one it was. Oh, oh, oh I didn't I didn't get the, the forward or afterward, or I didn't hear that part. I'm well, sorry. Well, I'm going to confide something in you <laughs> okay, what's that, that I've never told anyone Oh boy. in my life Okay. on a lot of drugs. <laughs> You're on a lot of drugs? Yeah. On a lot of drugs, oh. and um, well, I, I appreciate you confiding in me. Yeah, you want to know a secret? Yeah, no, wait, maybe. I already knew that. <laughs> so <laughs> we're doing well. We're doing great. We're uh, we are talking about Philip K. Dick. Getting back into you know a scanner darkly. So Philip K. Dick was on drugs. The book is semi autobiographical. It's kind yeah. of written about the yeah, period of his spe- life. He's speeding yeah. out. The period where Arctur, like, has a house, and I guess in Arctur's case it's because he was an accountant, and then as part of, like, the whatever program where he gets to be an undercover government informant or whatever, right. presumably he's living in the same house that he was when he was an accountant. I, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm going to make that assumption. Probably yeah. just his wife left him yes. and uh, took the kids, and now he's living in the same house. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah I would assume that's, yeah. The, yeah. I think that's presumably what's going what on. What happened to PKD in real life, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what went yeah. down. Yeah, yeah, and so I guess semi-autobiographical, as, as they say, probably he was not actually a covert police agent. No, yeah. no, probably not. Writing, he... writing this book yeah. to entrap us into confessing to being on drugs right now. The police are coming through that door for you, Reese. Oh, man. Yeah. Not me. For you and only you, because I've been entrapping you this entire time. This whole time? The entire time I have been entrapping you. This is all, the whole thing. Folks, we had a, I I thought we had a great schedule for next year for the book report. Apparently it's all over. Reese is going to jail for doing drugs, folks. Oh, no. Forever. Oh, wait. All drugs have been (laughs) decriminalized. (laughs) Pull back the sirens, pull back the lights, hold on, no, 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 we're all good. 
But I will it, admit it, this has been a waste of police resources. But that's yes, true. Yes. Okay, yeah, the whole time. <laughs> let's pull it all back. I, I think the substance D at the uh, at its very base level is allegorical for anything that we find ourselves addicted to. Yeah, I, absolutely. Be, because you know, yes, they they talk about the physical side effects of it. You know, I, I think that that is direct to PKD's experience with various drugs and how they've affected his life and psyche. But, you know, you can really substitute anything in for substance D. Yeah, well, no, I mean... I I so badly wanted to do a substance D's nuts joke. Substance D's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? We're probably going to leave it in. Slow death. Slow death. That's all that it is. Slow death, D's nuts. I'm going to use the restroom. Okay. Yes, sir. As the editor of the universe in which this is taking place, you actually have a tremendous amount of power. I do, actually. Which you may even not be aware. Because, because Mm. if you think about it, you can make me say I love Hitler. Hitler. You can make me be like, you know, like Kanye West. That's what happened to Kanye West, who this entire episode has been about the entire time. The most important person in the world. Kanye West, what are we doing? I don't know. That's Thank Jesus, we finally got there. Because if there's one thing that Philip K. Dick would have loved is an ego the size of Kanye West. No, he was <laughs> Philip K. Dick was prophesying the coming of Kanye oh, West when he, Kanye when he wrote there. this book. That you know nobody's gonna nobody's gonna fact check us. We can claim that it has the, these words in it. That's yeah. true. Yeah, it, yeah, how many people read anymore? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, I'm covering Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? With Jeremiah Coughlin, who's super funny. You've seen him around various places, so really, I, most probably. Okay, so this this is what I kind of wanted to get into. Because the impetus behind uh, A Scanner Darkly is, like, his actual life breaking down around him. Due to his addiction and uh, and, and a number of uh, other factors in play. Yes. I, I don't know if you want to read this real quick, but this this right here is all of, like... You know what, I'm just not even going to try to read things off of a screen right now, because that's all a bunch of fucking wizardry and hookum. I had such a hard time (laughs) when I was reading... When I was reading my essay earlier, and it was, okay, shit was, like, moving, and so this box of lights that you have here was doing all sorts of peculiar things, (laughs) and, like... I was trying to, like, pay attention to what was going on. (laughs) This box of lights... (laughs) Oh, that is what it is. I, I mean, like, dude, imagine showing this to somebody a thousand years ago. Dude, no, yeah, exactly. Like, imagine go back to fucking Gutenberg, and he, you're like, oh, you think that's hot shit? <laughs> Bitch, I, what about quantum? What about quantum physics? What's up, Gutenberg? What, what about fucking you, you this pr- cold pressing? Fucking, you know, you know what we did, Gutenberg? We did a thing related to cold fusion this week. That happened this week. You know, Gutenberg, think you're hot shit with your shit. Fuck you, Gutenberg. But without Gutenberg, though, and I'm assuming we mean Steve Gutenberg, uh, we, we wouldn't have the police academy. Yes, movies. I was specifically talking about police academy movies. Okay. No, I was talking about... But the point is... You were talking about the 15th century German typesetter. But, but, the point is, imagine if I could do sound effects with my mouth right now. Yes. I have that imagination. Yeah. You're, we're not doing anything. <laughs> you're, if, you were, if you were to move your mouth and or larynx with air going in throughout it, you know, like every which way, you know, or is it your voice? I'm just... Voice? I don't... Like... Okay, like in like in Spaceballs when he um mm-hmm. does the radar sound. Yeah. Uh, the what? The what? And the what? You know the bleeps. The sweeps. And the creeps. That's not all he's lost, <gasps> sir. The radar, sir. It appears to be jammed. Shout out Michael Winslow. Um, it's probably a good thing that uh, PKD has. He did have some semblance of sobriety, and that's um, why this life. entire book is about Michael Winslow from several movies. Okay, but basically, uh, and that's what Philip K. Dick intended. That was the authorial intent. That like, is the yeah. definitive, one hundred percent. Philip K. Dick wrote. <laughs> Philip Philip Kindred Dick. Yeah. Yeah, wrote this book about Michael Winslow from the Police Academy movies. And if anyone tells you different, 
you are obligated to fight them to the death on the spot. You heard it first here on the book report. That yes. that is a direct order from Noah Lins to murder somebody on the spot if they do not I agree am... with that. Very, for very the, unhinged for, sentence that you For learn. the purposes of all law enforcement entities, I am hereby inciting violence oh against Lord. literally anyone that you meet on the street. At so any, many, you can just assume that they feel that way about Michael Winslow. So and many, just, assault, just assault someone today and tell the police that I told you to do it. So many great sound bites. <laughs> so many great clips we're going to have from this. Obviously, this is all satire. Do not go out and harm the public. Despite Noah's very odd, maniacal laughter, do not go out and harm the public. Assault someone today. Just the first person you see. Do it. Hey, this is next morning, Noah, saying don't assault people. Just don't assault people. Like I said, we do the deep research required here on the show to provide you with the ramblings of two nerds on psychedelics. But one point I did make was that PKD is a fascinating guy, despite or perhaps because of his many flaws. So let's get to know the prolific author a bit better, shall we? Philip Kindred Dick, born December 16, 1928, was an American science fiction writer. He wrote 44 novels and about 121 short stories, most of which appeared in science fiction magazines during his lifetime. His fiction explored varied philosophical and social questions, such as the nature of reality, perception, human nature, and identity, and commonly featured characters struggling against elements such as alternate realities, illusory environments, monopolistic corporations, drug abuse, authoritarian governments, and altered states of consciousness. Dick's stories typically focus on the fragile nature of what is real and the construction of personal identity. His stories often become surreal fantasies as the main characters slowly discover that their everyday world is actually an illusion assembled by powerful external entities, such as the suspended animation in Ubik, vast political conspiracies, or the vicissitudes of an unreliable narrator. Quote, all of his work starts with the basic assumption that there cannot be one single objective reality, writes science fiction author Charles Platt. Everything is a matter of perception. The ground is liable to shift under your feet. A protagonist may find himself living out another person's dream, or he may enter a drug-induced state that actually makes better sense than the real world, or he may cross into a different universe completely. Alternate universes and simulacra are common plot devices, with fictional worlds inhabited by common, working people rather than galactic elites. Quote, there are no heroes in Dick's books, Ursula K. Le Guin wrote, but there are heroics. One is reminded of Dickens, what counts as the honesty, constancy, kindness, and patience of ordinary people. Dick made no secret that much of his thinking and work was heavily influenced by the writings of Carl Jung. The Jungian constructs and models that most concern Dick seem to be the archetypes of the collective unconscious, group projection slash hallucination, synchronicities, and personality theory. Many of Dick's protagonists overtly analyze reality and their perceptions in Jungian terms. Mental illness was a constant interest of Dick's and themes of mental illness permeate his work. The character Jack Boland in the 1964 novel Martian Time Slip is an ex-schizophrenic. The novel Clans of the Alphane Moon centers on an entire society made up of descendants of lunatic asylum inmates, and in 1965 he wrote the essay titled Schizophrenia and the Book of Changes. Drug use, including religious, recreational, and abuse, was also a theme in many of Dick's work, such as A Scanner Darkly, of course, and The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch which is no surprise because Dick himself was a drug user for much of his life. According to a 1975 interview in Rolling Stone, Dick wrote all of his books published before 1970 while on amphetamines. He's quoted as saying, A Scanner Darkly was the first complete novel I had written without speed. He also experimented briefly with psychedelics, but wrote The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, which Rolling Stone dubs the classic LSD novel of all time, before he had even tried them. Despite his heavy amphetamine use, however, Dick later said that doctors told him the amphetamines never actually affected him, that his liver had processed them before they reached his brain. That sounds like some speed reasoning to me. Summing up all of these themes and understanding Philip K. Dick, Eric Carl Link discussed eight themes or ideas and motifs present within Dick's works. Epistemology and the nature of reality, know thyself, the android and the human, entropy and pot healing, the theodicy problem, which is to answer the question of why a good God permits the manifestation of evil, 
Warfare and Power Politics, The Evolved Human, and Technology, Media, Drugs, and Madness. But why is PKD the way he is? Well, there's a lot behind that. In 1971, Dick's marriage to Nancy Hackett, his fourth of five wives, broke down, and she moved out of their house in Santa Fenicia, California. He had abused amphetamines for most of the previous decade, stemming in part from his need to maintain a prolific writing regimen due to the financial exigencies of the science fiction field. Following the release of 21 novels between 1960 and 1970, these developments were exacerbated by unprecedented periods of writer's block, with Dick ultimately failing to publish new fiction until 1974. One day in November 1971, Dick returned to his home to discover it had been burglarized, with his safe blown open and his personal papers missing. The police couldn't determine the culprit and even suspected Dick of having done it himself. Shortly thereafter, he was invited to be guest of honor at the Vancouver Science Fiction Convention in February of 1972. Within a day of arriving at the conference and giving his speech, The Android and the Human, he informed people that he had fallen in love with a woman named Janice, whom he had met there, and announced that he would be remaining in Vancouver. A conference attendee, Michael Walsh, movie critic for the local newspaper The Province, invited Dick to stay in his home, but asked him to leave two weeks later due to his erratic behavior. Janice then ended their relationship and moved away. And on March 23, 1972, Dick attempted suicide by taking an overdose of the sedative potassium bromide. Subsequently, after deciding to seek help, Dick became a participant in the Ex-Calais, a Canadian Synanon-type recovery program, and was well enough by April to return to California. On February 20th, 1974, while recovering from the effects of sodium pentothal administered for the extraction of an impacted wisdom tooth, Dick received a home delivery of Darvon from a young woman. When he opened the door, he was struck by the dark-haired girl's beauty and was especially drawn to her golden necklace. He asked her about its curious fish-shaped design. As she was leaving, she replied, This is a sign used by the early Christians. Dick called the symbol the Vesicle Pisces. This name seems to have been based on his conflation of two related symbols, the Christian Ichthys symbol, which is two intersecting arcs delineating a fish in profile, uh, which the woman was wearing at the time, and the Vesica Pisces, a mathematical shape formed by the intersection of two discs with the same radius. Dick recounted that as the sun glinted off of the gold pendant, the reflection caused the generation of a pink beam of light that mesmerized him. He came to believe the beam imparted wisdom and clairvoyance, and also believed it to be intelligent. On one occasion, he was startled by a separate recurrence of the pink beam, which imparted the information that his infant son was ill. The Dicks rushed the child to the hospital, where the illness was confirmed by professional diagnosis. After the woman's departure, Dick began experiencing strange hallucinations. Although initially attributing them to side effects from medication, he considered this explanation implausible after weeks of continued hallucination. He told Charles Platt, I experienced an invasion of my mind by a transcendentally rational mind, as if I had been insane all my life and suddenly I'd become sane. Throughout February and March of 1974, Dick experienced a series of hallucinations which he referred to as 2 to 374, shorthand for February to March of 74. Aside from the pink beam, he described the initial hallucinations as geometric patterns and occasionally brief pictures of Jesus in ancient Rome. As the hallucinations increased in duration and frequency, Dick claimed he began to live two parallel lives. One is himself, Philip K. Dick, and one is Thomas, a Christian persecuted by Romans in the first century AD. He referred to the transcendentally rational mind as Zebra, God, and Valis, an acronym for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. He wrote about the experiences, first in the semi-autobiographical novel Radio Free Albemuth, and then in Valis, The Divine Invasion, the Transmigration of Timothy Archer, and the unfinished The Owl in Daylight, part of the Vallis trilogy. By the way, Dick did so much writing that he also had to publish works under two pen names, Richard Phillips and Jack Dowland. In 1974, Dick wrote a letter to the FBI accusing various people, including University of California San Diego professor Frederick Jameson, of being foreign agents of Warsaw Pact powers. He also wrote that Stanislav Lem was probably a false name used by a composite committee operating on orders of the Communist Party to gain control over public opinion. That sounds like one of those amphetamine theories. At one point, Dick felt that he had been taken over by the spirit of the prophet Elijah. He believed that an episode in his novel Flow My Tears, the policeman said, was a detailed retelling of a biblical story from the Book of Acts, which he had never read. He documented and discussed his experiences and faith in a private journal he calls his exegesis. 
portions of which were later published as the exegesis of Philip K. Dick. The last novel he wrote was The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, and it was published shortly after his death in 1982. Turning into pop culture, several of Dick's stories have been made into films. Dick himself wrote a screenplay for an intended film adaptation of Ubik in 1974, but the film was never made. Many film adaptations have not used Dick's original titles. When asked why this was, Dick's ex-wife Tessa said, Actually, the books rarely carry Phil's original titles, as the editors usually wrote new titles after reading his manuscripts. Phil often commented that he couldn't write good titles. If he could, he would have been an advertising writer instead of a novelist. Films based on Dick's writing had accumulated a total revenue of over $1 billion U.S. by the year 2009. Starting off that list, we have Blade Runner from 1982, based on Dick's 1968 novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is directed by Ridley Scott and starring Harrison Ford, Sean Young, and Rutger Hauer. You can learn more about that film by checking out episode 6 of Science Factual with Ben Levy. Then we have Total Recall from 1990, which is based on the short story We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is directed by Paul Verhoeven and starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Then we have Screamers from 1995, which is based on the short story Second Variety and was directed by Christian Duguay and starring Peter Weller. The location was altered from a war-devastated Earth to a distant planet, and a sequel titled Screamers The Hunting was released straight to DVD in 2009. Then of course we have Minority Report from 2002, which is based on the short story The Minority Report. That was directed by Steven Spielberg and of course starring Thomas Cruise. After that, we have Imposter from 2002, which is based on the 1953 story of the same name. That was directed by Gary Flater and starring Gary Sinise, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Madeleine Stowe. This story was also adapted in 1962 for the British television anthology series Out of This World. Then in 2003, we have Paycheck, which was directed by John Woo and starring Ben Affleck, based on Dick's short story of the same name. Then, of course, in 2006, we have A Scanner Darkly, which was directed by Richard Linklater and starring Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, and Robert Downey Jr. The film was produced using the process of rotoscoping, which means it was first shot in live action and then the live footage was animated over. Then in 2007, we have Next, which was directed by Lee Tamahori and starring Nicolas Cage, loosely based on the short story The Golden Man. The most recent film adaptations have been Radio Free Albemuth in 2010, directed by John Allen Simon, which is loosely based on the novel of the same name. 2011 brought The Adjustment Bureau, directed by George Nolfi and starring Matt Damon, which is loosely based on the short story of a slightly different title, Adjustment Team. 2012 saw a reboot of Total Recall, which was directed by Len Weissman and starring Colin Farrell. And then, of course, 2017 saw the release of Blade Runner 2049, directed by Denis Villeneuve and starring Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford, a sequel to the 1982 film Blade Runner, based on, of course, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. For more on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, listen to episode 58 of Science Factual, where I look at that novel in particular with comedian Jeremiah Coughlin. On February 17, 1982, after completing an interview, Dick contacted his therapist complaining of failing eyesight and was advised to go to a hospital immediately, but did not. The following day, he was found unconscious on the floor of his Santa Ana, California home, having suffered a stroke. On February 25th, Dick suffered another stroke in the hospital, which led to brain death. Five days later, on March 2, 1982, he was disconnected from life support. I hope his final trip was an interesting one. Before we move on, let's listen to the author's experiences in his own words with this clip of a speech called, If you find this world bad, you should see some of the others, after which the audience would leave bewildered and mystified by his insights. Trust me, after this clip, you're going to want to do a YouTube dive into the full version of this speech. It is amazing. Oh, and do yourself a favor, find one without the French translator, as it helps to hear his thoughts in one go without interruptions. May I tell you how much I appreciate your asking me to share some of my ideas with you. The title of my address is, If You Find This World Bad, You Should See Some of the Others. I would like to confess that I've been asked to cut about two-thirds of my speech out and deliver as short a speech as possible. Upon examining my speech, I find that it is very easy to remove two-thirds without doing any injury to it. <laughs> I even considered cutting three-thirds out of it, but uh, there was some trouble, so I abandoned that idea. 
The subject of this speech is a topic which has been discovered recently and which may not exist at all. I may be talking about something that does not exist. Therefore, I'm free to say everything or nothing. I can hardly make an error if there is no such thing as orthogonal time. Orthogonal or right-angle time is the topic of my speech. We are accustomed to supposing that all change takes place along the linear time axis, from past to present to future. The present is an accrual of the past and is different from it. The future will accrue from the present on and be different yet. That an orthogonal or right-angled time axis could exist, a lateral domain in which change takes place, processes occurring sideways in reality, so to speak, this is almost impossible to imagine. How would we perceive such lateral changes? What would we experience? What clues, if we are trying to test out this bizarre theory, should we be on the alert for? In other words, how can change take place outside of linear time at all, in any sense, to any degree? Let me present you with a metaphor. Let us say that there exists this very rich patron of the arts. Every day on the wall of his living room above his fireplace, his servants hang a new picture, each day a different masterpiece, day after day, month after month, each day the used one is removed and replaced by a different and new one. I shall call this process change along the linear axis. But now let us suppose the servants temporarily running out of new replacement pictures. What shall they do in the meantime? They can't just leave the present one hanging. Their employer has decreed that perpetual replacement, that is to say changing the pictures, is to take place. So they neither allow the current one to remain, nor do they replace it with a new one. Instead, they do a very clever thing. When their employer is not looking, the servants cunningly alter the picture already on the wall. They paint out a tree here. They paint in a little girl there. They add this. They obliterate that. They make the same painting different and, in a sense, new, but, as I'm sure you can see, not new in the sense of replacing it. The employer enters his living room after dinner, seats himself facing the fireplace, and contemplates what should be, according to his expectations, the new picture. What does he see? It certainly isn't what he saw previously, but also it isn't somehow and here we must become very sympathetic with this perhaps somewhat stupid man because we can virtually see his brain circuits striving to understand. His brain circuits are saying, yes, it is a new picture. It is not the same one as yesterday. But also it is the same one, I think. I feel on a very deep intuitive basis. I feel that somehow I've seen it before. I seem to remember a tree, though, and there is no tree. Now, perhaps if we extrapolate from this man's perceptual mentational confusion to the theoretical point I was making about lateral change, you can get a better idea of what I mean. I mean, perhaps you can, to at least a degree, see that although what I'm talking about may not exist, my concept may be fictional, it could exist. It is not intellectually self-contradictory. Contemplating this possibility of a lateral arrangement of worlds a plurality of overlapping Earths along whose linking axis a person can somehow move, can travel in a mysterious way from worse to fair to good to excellent. Contemplating this in theological terms, perhaps we could say that herewith we suddenly decipher the elliptical utterances which Christ expressed regarding the kingdom of God, specifically where it is located. He seems to have given contradictory and puzzling answers. But suppose, just suppose for an instant, that the cause of the perplexity lay not in any desire on his part to baffle or to hide, but in the inadequacy of the question. My kingdom is not of this world, he is reported to have said. The kingdom is within you, or possibly it is among you. I put before you now the notion which I personally find exciting, that he may have had in mind that which I speak of as the lateral axis of overlapping realms which contain among them a spectrum of aspects ranging from the unspeakably malignant to the beautiful. And Christ was saying over and over again, 
that there really are many objective realms somehow related and somehow bridgeable by living not dead men and that the most wondrous of these worlds was a just kingdom in which either he himself or God himself or both of them ruled. And he did not merely speak of a variety of ways of subjectively viewing one world. The kingdom was and is an actual different place at the opposite end of continua, starting with slavery and utter pain. It was his mission to teach his disciples the secret of crossing along this orthogonal path. He did not merely report what lay there. He taught the method of getting there. But, tragically, the secret was lost. The enemy, the Roman authority, crushed it. And so we do not have it. But perhaps we can refine it, since we know that such a secret exists. Kingdom is ever to be established here on earth, or whether it is a place or state we go to after death. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that this issue has been a fundamental one and an unresolved one throughout the history of Christianity. Christ and St. Paul both seem to say emphatically that an actual breaking through into time, that is specifically what they say, a breaking through into time, into our world, by the host of God, will unexpectedly occur. Thereupon, after some exciting drama, a thousand-year paradise, a rightful kingdom will be established, at least for those who have done their homework and chores and generally paid attention, have not gone to sleep, as one parable puts it. We are enjoined repeatedly in the New Testament to be vigilant, that for the Christian it is always day. There is always light by which he can see this event when it comes. See this event. Does that imply that many persons who are somehow asleep or blind or not vigilant they will not see it even though it occurs? Consider the significance which can be assigned to these notions. The kingdom will come here unexpectedly. This is always stressed. The rightful faithful shall see it because for them it is always daytime. But for the others, what seems expressed here is the paradoxical but enthralling thought that, and hear this and ponder, the kingdom were it established here would not be visible to those outside it. I offer the idea that in more modern terms, what is meant that some of us will travel laterally to that better world and some will not. They will remain stuck along the lateral axis, which means that for them the kingdom did not come, not in their alternative world. And yet, meantime, it did come in ours. So it comes, and yet it does not come. Amazing. I'm going to cut down to here. If you have followed my conjectures about the overlapping of these alternate worlds, and you sense as I do the possibility that if there are three or four or two, there may be 30 or 3,000 of them, and that some of us live in this one, others of us in another one, others in others, and that events on one track cannot be perceived by persons not in that track, well, let me say what I want to say and be done with it. I think I once experienced a track in which the Savior returned, but I experienced it just briefly. I am not there now. I am not sure I ever was. Certainly I may never be again. I grieve for that loss, but loss it is. Somehow I moved laterally, but then fell back, and then it was gone. A vanished mountain and a stream, the sound of bells, and all gone now for me, entirely gone. I, in my stories and novels, often write about counterfeit worlds, semi-real worlds, as well as deranged private worlds, inhabited often by just one person, while meantime the other characters either remain in their own worlds throughout or are somehow drawn into one of the peculiar ones. This theme occurs in the corpus of my 27 years of writing. At no time did I have a theoretical or conscious explanation for my preoccupation with these pluriform pseudo-worlds, but now I think I understand. What I was sensing was the manifold of partially actualized realities lying tangent to what evidently is the most actualized one, the one which the majority of us by consensus gentium agree on. Although originally I presumed that the differences between these worlds 
was caused entirely by the subjectivity of the various human viewpoints. It did not take me long to open the question as to whether it might not be more than that, that in fact plural realities did exist superimposed onto one another like so many film transparencies. What I still do not grasp, however, is how one reality out of the many becomes actualized in contradistinction to the others. Perhaps none does, or perhaps, again, it hangs on an agreement in viewpoint by a sufficiency of people. More likely, the matrix world, the one with the true core of being, is determined by the programmer. He or it articulates, prints out, so to speak, the matrix choice and fuses it with actual substance. The core or essence of reality, that which receives or attains it, and to what degree, that is within the purview of the programmer. This selection and reselection is part of general creativity, of world building, which seems to be it or his task. A problem, perhaps, which he or it is running, which is to say, in the process of solving, as a computer would. Incredibly interesting insights from a fascinating dude. I'd like to thank our varied sources for this episode, of which there are many, including of course Wikipedia, because if it's on Wikipedia, it was probably written by your doppelganger from an alternate reality. Seriously though, there is a lot of information out there on PKD, so I encourage you to do your own research into the legendary sci-fi author, and explore his collection of novels and stories. For the next chapter of the book report, we will be doing a decades dive along with Science Factual taking a look at sci-fi literature from the 19th into the turn of the 20th century, with a focus on authors like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, plus a special look at Frankenstein by Mary Shelley with Cassie Rood providing research on the classic novel. That episode will be released on all the podcast platforms during the last week of January in 2023, so we here at The Book Report wish you a happy and healthy new year, being that this is the last chapter of 2022. Until then, this has been Reese Hendrick for Noah Linsk and The Book Report, reminding you to pick up a book and explore the world within.